Hey there, and welcome to Upfront, a podcast that features conversations with Connecticut-based top performers who represent the very best in their field and how they are making an impact in their industry and here at home in Connecticut. Thanks for listening. Hello, everyone. Welcome to a new episode of Upfront. I hope you are doing well. I am really excited for our guest on this episode because it's a little bit different than who we've had on in the past. We've featured CEOs of companies, directors of corporations, family businesses, and so forth. All impressive guests, no question, but this is different. What I love about our next guest is that he's a reverend and a doctor in the PhD sense, not the medical term. And he's an influencer and person who is doing incredible work for the community. I suppose we could say it's God's work, but after speaking with him more, I learned that it was really his calling in life. Reverend Dr. Leroy Perry is a pastor at St. Stephen's AME Zion Church in Brantford and is a cultural ambassador to the Yale Clinical Research Program. Originally from Roanoke, Virginia, his family made their way to Connecticut for work and settled in Waterbury. A life-changing experience set him on his path, and we'll get into that later. And from there, he earned his BA from Livingstone College, his MDiv from Yale Divinity, STM, and a doctoral degree from the New York Theological Seminary. He is devoted to improving the lives of anyone he comes into contact with and is someone who is committed to striving for the betterment of community. In addition to his work as a pastor, Dr. Perry also presently serves as the director of the Fatherhood Initiative Program at New Opportunities in Waterbury. We talk about his time of growing up in Roanoke as a child, why family is so important, what makes great leaders, some personal hard lessons learned, and why you can't achieve success unless you're willing to sacrifice. I hope you enjoy our inspiring conversation. All right, Reverend Dr. Leroy Perry, um, welcome to Upfront. Thank you. Good morning. Good morning. It is morning here. It's a, it's a beautiful, sunny morning after a dark and stormy weekend here in Connecticut. So um, we just had a, what was Hurricane and Tropical Storm Henri, which um, you, did, you did okay through that, right? Absolutely. Thank God. <laughs> Thank God is right. Okay. Where are you physically um, at this moment in time? I'm in... Uh I'm at the New Opportunities Building here in Waterbury, Connecticut. Okay. And you're originally from Roanoke, Virginia, correct? Yes, I am. And you, you were born there. How, how long did you live in, in Roanoke? Um, I lived in Roanoke as a child until I was five. Until you were five. Okay. And do you have any memories from, from growing up there? Oh yeah, it was a, it was Roanoke. I have a lot of good memories. Yeah, what 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 were some of those memories? Tell us what it was like. Well, we lived in a single family house. We had a grand piano or baby grand in the house. Uh, we had a park that we could walk to, and as a as a boy, I used to climb the trees in the yard and get the juni bugs off of the uh, off the roses for my neighbor. Mm. It it was just I mean the the food I remember the food like at dinner time there was always a salad there was always iced tea or Dr Pepper um, there was just a, a family style meal uh, where we sat around the table and um, my parents both well my my dad worked on the railroad, mm-hmm. my mom was a stay-at-home mom. How, and you say family, the, the you know, the family dinners and so forth. What, what, was it a large family, small family? Um, there were four of us, um, and my mom and dad, and my mom's brother lived right next door. Oh, there wow. was an alleyway, driveway, like, that separated us. So Sunday dinners, we, we would 
eat with them or they would eat with us. It, it was it was really nice. Nothing like bringing family together over over a table of food, right? <laughs> oh, I'm telling you, I'm telling you. <laughs> and okay, so five years old, six years old around that time. Um, what brought your family up here to uh, Connecticut, specifically Waterbury? Well, I had an aunt in Waterbury who, um, who I guess let my mom and dad know that there were, there were manufacturing jobs here that paid well. Mm. And so uh, we migrated here, moved to Orange Street, and um, lived on the second floor in the, in, the, in the building that they owned until we were able to purchase our own home. Got it. Okay. Yeah, Waterbury is one of Connecticut's great cities, right? The brass city. Um, oh, yeah. Because of that rich history of manufacturing. Um, what What was life like growing up in Waterbury, say, compared to, to Roanoke? Was it Was it a difficult adjustment? Do you Do you remember that, or did you just kind of slide right in? Well, in Roanoke, mostly. Um uh, most people own their homes, where in Connecticut, most people rent it. Mm. Um, in Roanoke, I went to Lawton School, which was a segregated school. And in Waterbury, I went to Walsh School, which was an integrated school. Interesting. And, uh, in Roanoke, I didn't live, where we lived was not considered a ghetto. And where, I, where we moved to was considered a ghetto. But I didn't know that until I was in college. <laughs> <laughs> Interesting. I imagine snow, right? Did, did you experience snow for the first time in Waterbury? Or, or did oh, you? <laughs> that was awesome. Uh, snow was fun for us initially because we got sleds and we lived on a hill. So we would ride the sleds down the hill. And then we realized that snow also meant work. You had to clean the cars, you had to clean the parking spaces, you had to clean the sidewalks. Oh, yeah. So, you know, we got a good work ethic out of the snow in Waterbury uh, because there were three boys and we, that was our job. <laughs> <laughs> That's my, my brother and I had the same job. We had to shovel the driveway and I, and I used that word, keyword there, shovel. Uh, because it was hand shovels. And then, you know, as, as my parents got older and we got older, we moved out and my, my parents finally got a snowblower. <laughs> oh, wow. I said, well, where was this when we were growing up? So <laughs> yeah. um, how, how many brothers and sisters did you, uh, did, did, did you say you had? One sister and two brothers. One, my youngest brother passed away. And so now it's just the three of us. Okay. I mean, my sister, my brother, and myself. Are you the um, the oldest, the youngest, the uh, middle child? I'm the oldest boy, and my sister was the oldest girl. Got it. So a lot of, uh, not really pressure, but uh, being the oldest, you sort of paved the path, right? Everybody's kind of keeping an eye on it. Oh, absolutely. 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 I, I was studying something at the Johnson Institute once, and they talked about the oldest child was the uh, savior child. Mm. The middle child was the child who heard everything. And the baby child was the child who who got the less weapons and uh, <laughs> got most, you know, was mostly favorite as the as the as the last child. Interesting. So you're you're in Waterbury. Did you did you have any um, childhood aspirations then like what what you know you know what did you want to be when you grew up well I had an I had an experience when I was in Virginia okay and um, I was going I was going to school and I'd stopped by and I'd gotten one of these bubblegum rings out of um, out of the one out of the out of the machines uh, there probably was a penny I gave it to this young girl named Rosalind, and this other young man, I, I didn't know he had dibs on her or he, <laughs> he had an interest in her. And I remember so vividly, after school, 
while waiting on the bus, this young man attacked me and he had a pocket knife. Oh, wow. Pocket knife was probably no bigger than your pinky finger, but uh, at my age, it looked like a, uh, <laughs> it, it, it looked like something that Rambo might have pulled out. Sure. And uh, there was a minister who was across the street, his name was Samson. And I followed this man throughout my, uh, my life, not knowing that I would hook up with him ever again. And um, he stopped the fight, called our parents, and chastised the young man with the knife. But I thank God that my life had been spared. And this, this individual, this preacher that I didn't know had intervened. And I looked at it as, as a godly intervention in my mm. life. So I went home and I, I, my dad had given me some, some allowance. I think it was like six pennies. And I dug a hole in the ground and I gave it. I put it in the ground and I said, you know what? Anything I can do for you, I'll be your servant. Mm. Not knowing that later on, um, he would reduce the multiplicity of my possibilities to a single one. And that's, uh, that's how my ministry started here in Waterbury. I was a teenager in high school when I decided I would uh, go into the ministry. Mm. And uh, I remember very vividly my pastor saying to me, are you sure you want to be an Amy Zion? Or do you want to be a Baptist, a Roman Catholic, an Episcopal, Episcopalian? And I didn't know how to answer him, so I said, uh, I don't know, what's the difference? And so he started to explain to me, now I'm a teenager in high school, part of my concern is that people will see me as a person too godly to have conversation with, or too holy to uh, enjoy company with, which I was neither at the time. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, So he told me, he said, if you, if you go into the Baptist denomination, it is a congregationally governed body. I said, what does that mean? He said, that means that they, they the, the congregation governs the church. So they can hire you, they can fire you, they can, you know, you can contract with them, but that's where the power is. So I said, well, what about the Methodist church? He said, well, the Methodist church is Episcopally governed. So the governing board is the board of bishops and they, they send you, you don't get to choose where you go. And I said, well, why would, why would anybody want to be uh, a Methodist? And, you know, he said that the history of our church was one of the things that had attracted him. And then we started talking about that history. You know, um, he said, this is the church of Frederick Douglass, the church of Sojourner Truth, the church of uh, Harriet Tugman, the church of W.E.B. Du Bois, and he said, he said, if you want to be a Methodist, you can't just jump up and say you want to be a minister. You have to go to school and prepare yourself. So, I, I mean, I, so I gave it some real thought. My parents had, were, um, my parents were, neither of them were college graduates. Both of them finished high school in Virginia. But they had marked us early on to tell us that we were not going to be where they were, that we were going, going to college and we were going to do better than they did. Mm -hmm. So when he, when he told me that the obligation was that you had to go to college and you had to go to seminary, that meant seven years. And I'm thinking, oh, my God. But he said, if you're really called for this, then, you know, you should be prepared for it. And don't just think that, you know, people are going to put words in your mouth or in your head and you, this is how your ministry is going to go. No, you have to be uh, a man of all seasons. You have to know something about different cultures and races. You have to know something about philosophy, theology. So I, I in my senior year, I accepted that call to ministry at Mount Olive here in Waterbury. And I went to Livingstone College in Salisbury, North Carolina, which was a uh, cultural shock. Mm -hmm. I, First of all, there were, you know, when you get off the bus, and this, th those are the days when you took the trailway and you had the big trunk because your parents didn't have cars and they weren't going to drive you uh, 10 hours down the road. 
uh, and I got off the bus and saw the red clay. I called home and said, Ma, I want to come home. <laughs> different world. <laughs> oh, a different world. And I, there were people who were eating the clay. And there were people there who were eating starch. And there were people there from the agrarian areas. They, they, had, they had owned farms and worked on farms. And um, they were part of, part of the group. Mm. And for, one, for, for a moment, I thought that because I was coming from the north, I had something over them, almost like the Booker T. Washington and the W.E.B. Du Bois debate. And I realized that um, geography really was not as important as was the um, desire to learn. And, um, and so there were a lot of bright, bright students at Livingstone. A number of them went on to be clergy. They left Livingstone and went to Hood Theological Seminary, which is the seminary connected with Hood. Mm-hmm. And uh, some of them went to be doctors. And I, you know, even up in New York, I, I, I ran into doctors who had been to Livingstone. And I chose to, I, I chose history as my major. And then in my, so in my second, third year, that's, that was my major. And education and philosophy was my minor. And um, my, I remember my history teacher who had studied at the Sorbonne, she would say to me, Mr. Perry, uh, history is a bastard science. And I'm thinking, what, are the, what is she talking about? <laughs> and she said, well, if you study history, you have to study everything else. You have to know something about all these other disciplines. You have to know the things that make these things significant. And you have to understand that history is is bias. It's it's his story, right? And you got to learn to be able to delineate when you hear or read certain things, to know that this is this could be the author's opinion, and not necessarily uh, an unbiased opinion. So, I think that was the the point in my life where I started to learn critical thinking. And I, and for the rest of my for the rest of my life, I've spent in school. So when I left there, I went to, I, I graduated early. I shouldn't say graduated, I finished early. I finished in my junior, my first semester, I think of my senior year. And then one of the professors had moved to Atlanta University and invited me. So I still had, I'm still resident at Livingstone and I went to Atlanta University to ITC, the Interdenominational Theological Center, which is one of the greatest uh, theological centers in the world. It, it's made up of seven different schools like Shaw and Morehouse and um, I mean, I can't even name all of them. Uh, the, the, the Pentecostal church has a, has a school in there. So there were seven. And so I studied there for one semester. I'd already applied to Duke and to Yale and the guy accepted it both, but I thought I'd stay in the South and just, you know, and then I realized how difficult it was at ITC. I had a 3.9 average, but you had to work like uh, the Dickens to, uh, <laughs> to keep that average. And so when I looked at my application, my, my uh, acceptance letter from Yale, Yale said, if you come here, the number of credits you need to graduate are 70. And if you, and at ITC, that number was 90. Mm. At, at, at ITC, you are on a grading system, A, B, C, D, F. And on, uh, at Yale, there was pass, fail, high pass, and honors. And so I realized that it would be easier to be at home with my family. I, I'd done my, my stint in the South, I would learned a lot, um, saturated a lot of the culture and the history. And um, so I went, to, I went to Yale and while I was at Yale, I, uh, one of my work studies was to work at uh, the community college in, in New Haven. And then they gave me the opportunity to, to develop my own work study. So I started a coffee house in Waterbury. Oh, wow. 
Yeah, and my sister was Sister Love. She was a student at Southern. She she was um, she was our Sister Love. So she dealt with the young ladies. And then what I would do is I would pull talent from Yale, like poets, jazz musicians, conga players, um, and the church gave us the first floor. No, gave us a house on Pearl Street. And so we set up spool tables and we had herbal tea and then we had, we called it the uh, Emoja house. And uh, we had dinner, we had folk who came over and would do African dinners as fundraisers. And so for the two years that I was at Yale, uh, I ran the coffee house and they, that was my work study, which was really off because I was at my home church, I was in the, in the, and in the area of Waterbury that most needs attention even today on Pearl Street. Mm -hmm. And I was able to reach out to some young people and aspire them uh, to look at culture, which is something that um, Elaine Locke talked about and worked all of his life for. He was one of the professors at Howard University. Uh, Jeffrey Stewart just wrote a book on him called uh, The New Negro about Elaine Locke who tried to say that there was in the culture the value hidden like a diamond in the dirt, that there was something there of value. And it was in our music, it was in our poetry, it was in, in our soul. And that what we needed to do was to bring that out. And so um, when I finished Yale, I... <laughs> I realized I, when I finished Yale, I got married and moved to, was sent to um, Terrytown. And one of a town where it had only 300 black, black folk and black families. And Terrytown and North Terrytown, at one of the oldest churches, Foster Memorial Amy Zion Church, which through my efforts became a part of the National Registry because it was the place where underground, uh, it was a station for the underground um, railroad. Mm. And, um, the Shiloh Baptist Church and that church were churches where Fred Douglas delivered a number of his addresses. But while I was there, I realized again that, you know, you, that learning was so important. It had been embedded in my family. So my brother, he went to Livingstone and like me, he finished Yale. My sister went to Southern and then she got her master's and she became a teacher in the city. And so here I am in New York City in a little town. There's a country town that's in the town of Sleepy Hollow. <laughs> <laughs> Sleepy Hollow and the Dutch and the, and, and the Sleepy Hollow Cemetery and um, right on the Hudson. Just like the stories, right? <laughs> yeah, just like the stories. <laughs> And, and, you know, it's really hard when, when you're a young man. I was like 22, 23 years old. I had my master's degree and I was there. And I'm dealing with people who didn't know what Yale was. But they mm. thought it was a lock, a locksmith uh, or a lock. And then I realized that, you know, um, what I really wanted to do was be in a more urban area. Mm. Ministry had to deal with homelessness and poverty and injustice and and I didn't get that in, in, in Terrytown. It, it was it was like the Stafford wives. It was like uh, it's a suburb. It's a it's yeah, out, yeah. Yeah. Uh, very familiar with it. Out in the out in the uh, the sticks of New York as we say. <laughs> so the one thing that I did get involved in, I became uh, chairman of their um, COC, uh, which is a community opportunity center that had a lot of programs for youth. And I also worked with the NAACP at Sing Sing Prison, which in itself was an experience. You know, when you go in and, um, and you work with, uh, with lifers who can take your life, um, and yet there, you would never think that, that Sing Sing would have an NAACP branch. Mm. So I stayed, I stayed in Terrytown for almost 20 years and um, I then moved to New York City, to Harlem, 155th in St. Nick. Uh, and St. Nick was on one, St. Nicholas was on one side and um, 
Amsterdam was on the other, and a block from that was Broadway. Now I really got a taste of what urban. <laughs> <laughs> what year was this uh, around? Uh, it was on '86. Okay. And uh, it, was a, t- it was a very different New York back then. Oh yeah, oh yeah. So that's where I, I, you know, my ministry really kind of focused on a lot of different things. Like we did rallies with uh, Al Sharpton. He, he was our speaker. Bruce Wright was our judge. Bruce Wright was our speaker. Sharpton did a, uh, a rally for us in front of the police department while I was there. Uh, he was our speaker uh, on a number of occasions. And when I came to Waterbury, he also was our speaker at the Mount Olive Church. And I've started a program there called Boys to Men, mm. a mentoring program. And um, not I to, did not to be confused with the pop group Boys to Men. Right, right, absolutely not to be confused with that. So these were these were young guys. You know, like it was difficult to get young people to come to church anyway, particularly in in an urban area. Sure, fast living is fast living. I mean, this was an area where young guys would 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 do videotape of other young men fighting as a, as a kind of uh, mantle for manhood. And, and this was the area where gangs were trying to co-op young people who, whose moms were working and whose dads were no longer in their lives. And this, is the, this, this was that area. So I, I was able to go out on the street, canvas, and, and, and bring in 15 young, young men, uh, Hispanic and black, and then we would meet every Friday. We would have pizza, and we would we would do uh, karate. We would we would do poetry. We would talk about goals and aspirations. We talk about family life, and then it dawned on me when, just before Father's Day, after about four years of doing this, I said, "Why don't we all write a letter to our dads, and then we'll put it in a book, and and you'll be the authors of this book." And when I got the letter, I couldn't hold back the tears because 12 of the 14 young men who wrote in that book said that they did not uh, have any contact with their dads. The writing was atrocious as if, you know, the school system had failed them. Um, it, was, it was just terrible. So I, I couldn't do anything with the, with the letters uh, that they wrote. But it, it let me know of the pathos that was in our community in regards to the absence of uh, dads in our community. Mm, it's so and, important, right? Right. And I guess I didn't look at it in the systemic way that uh, Michelle Alexander did in her book. Um, uh, what was the name of that book? Um, the New Jim Crow where she talked about how, for example, the first militia were those who went out to bring slaves uh, back to the plantation, that the first armed militia were those who were the police. And in a way, she kind of reflects on that, that even after Reconstruction, after, after, the, after the Civil War, the Reconstruction turned and um, and so the Klan and those uh, who were seeking to, again, enslave African-American men, put them on chain gangs for, for a number of, of insignificant things. Almost like now when you think about them overturning marijuana and letting people out of the jails, these were the people who, you know, if they showed up to work late or these were the people who were suspected of stealing or these were the people who, who picked an apple off a tree they could be sentenced to the chain gang away from their families. And when you think about the antebellum South, dads, African-American men were never meant to be dads. They were meant to be breeders. And that's mm-hmm. why they could go from one plantation to another. And, and the more babies the plantation produced, the greater the revenue. And so dads were shipped from place to place. Their, their marriages were not legal nor binding. And, uh, so I tell my dads in my fatherhood program, you got a history that you need to understand that's systemic. And I tell them to read Michelle and Alexander's book, How the Prisons Are Prospering, when, 
when they were building prisons, how the court system prospered, how lawyers prospered. And the folk who suffered the most were the marginalized black people that they were they were sentencing to these outrageous um, sentences from um, nonviolent crimes. Yeah, no, for sure. I mean, I want to um, I want to kind of go go back a little bit because you 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 are. Uh, Way ahead of where I am, but I mean, this is such a fascinating story and 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 incredible. But you're talking, you know, when you're talking about you know father figures in life and so forth. Um, you had mentioned your your father had worked on the railroad and and your mom was a stay at home mom. Um, what kind of values did your parents instill in you that you still carry with you today and apply? See, my father, my father was. He was a he. He was a Navy man, mm-hmm. a railroad man, and he left school to take care of his mom. And uh, he went back to school after the service and got his diploma. So he would tell us how important that was. And um, he was he was a hard worker. So he gave all of us a work ethic. I mean, we were working when we were 12 and 13 years old. Either we were shining shoes, I was working at Woolworths, my brother's working at a catering house. Um, so he instilled that in us. And he instilled education. And, you know, he was a strong disciplinarian. So one day I, I got my report card from, um, from Walt School. I think I might have been in the fifth grade. and. At all season, one B. And I said, man, I don't want to take this card home to my dad. I said, because other kids got A's and B's. I wonder what he's going to say. And he's always stressing, you know, education. So when he looked at the card and he looked at me, he looked at the card again. And all he said to me was, when we brought you home from the hospital, the doctors didn't tell us that there was anything wrong with you. <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> so, uh, that was that was that was that was monumental for me because he he that was a message that I've carried all of my life and I and I thought about it I said well, other people can do well in school I one of my teachers looked at my life and said you're you're a late bloomer that that's your thing and then I thought about it and I said you know she's right I was never challenged I was never looked at as a real person in school only with certain teachers yeah. My father once said to me, uh, why are you sitting in front of the television and why are you always playing ball? Why don't you read a book? Now, I respected my father and with a little fear and trepidation, I wanted to say in my mind, I was saying, well, what did, I, what did you read? I don't see you reading a lot of books. And so I said in a nicer way, I said, Dad, so what books did you read when you were a child? He rattled off five books. He said, The Hardy Brothers. He said, The Knights of the Round Table, mm. Astro Perry, Jude the Obscure. And I'm saying, oh my God. I went right down to the library, the Silas Bronson Library, and got every single book that he said he read, and I read them. That's why I think dads are so important in this development of where our youth are today. Absolutely. But that, yeah. that's great, though. I mean, I remember some of those classic books as a kid, you know, just reading all of those, uh, uh, you know, Huckleberry Finn and the, Adventure, yes. the Adventures of Tom Sawyer and, you know, all sorts of uh, classics. Uh, just just super important. And I, I still read to this day, although I like to read a lot of business books and, and, and biographies. But, um, uh, you know, I... I I talk to a lot of CEOs and business founders on this show, and, and you know, not to say their job isn't easy because they they, they work very hard in their positions. Um, but when I look at all of the incredible work you do, um, you know, it really isn't easy. You're you're involved in people's lives. You influence decisions. You give back to the community and help help those in in need. It, it's not it's not easy. I mean, to put it in a nutshell, um, what what keeps you going? Um, I, I think that, I think that my, my childhood and my, um, my growing up poor, uh, 
kind of solidified um, that things were not as important to me. Mm. Like, even though we did not have a new car and my mom didn't have a fur coat, that really was not as important as the fact that we were a family and that we we never went hungry and we were never without clothes or care or love. And so I realized that on a broken humanity, that the one thing that we can give that that can be purchased with money is our is our love and our care for other people who who struggle and who have impossible odds and there's not always someone there to advocate for them just so again with my story in Virginia how this minister came and you know intervened mm-hmm. this was my my sense of of going back so my brother was a preacher who graduated from Yale, pastor and became a presiding elder. My my sister was an educator with her masters and my other brother who graduated from um, uh, Winston-Salem State, he became a um, regional uh, developer for GM which was a very powerful position that he had. It was like he was the East Coast regional uh, manager for General Motors. And I got him that job starting from the bottom up when I was in Terrytown because Terrytown had a plant. And I was at the COC and they called over and said, you know, we we really want to hire more African-Americans and minorities. Do you know of anybody? And we want someone who's graduated from college. And so my brother had just graduated. He couldn't get a job because his major was political science. And I tried to tell him, you got political science, you need to go into law. But he just thought having that degree. And then they hired him. They started him from the bottom. And he worked his way all the way to the top. That's incredible. It, it, it's like you come from a family, uh, at least you know your siblings, just the a family of, of giving and, and giving back. It's, a, it's incredible. Your brother's, you know, in the, in the same kind of quote-unquote field as you are and, you know, your sister um, teaching and so forth. So that, that's really inspiring. Take us through your daily routine. Um, you know, what time do you get up in the morning? Are you an early morning riser? Are you a night owl? I get up at between 5 and 5.30 every morning. And do, do you have any special kind of morning routines? You know, some, some people meditate, others don't check their emails or look at their phone right away. What do you, what's your routine? Is it a cup of coffee first thing or? No, uh, my, my first thing when I get up is I try to, as Howard Thurman, uh, one of the mystic preachers used to say to us, find a center. So when I get up, I, I spend about 10 minutes just trying to center myself, trying not to think about anything, but knowing that I'm awake and I'm concentrating on not trying to concentrate like on breathing, but not thinking about breathing, but you know, and I do that every day. And I think it helps get, bring clarity as my day begins, you know? For sure. Kind of kind of look within and, and center before you, t- you tackle the day. Um, what would you say that your leadership style is like? Um, I'm more I'm more with not the more rigid type of uh, leader. Uh, my style is more of uh, whatever the situation demands. I believe that the caregiver or the theology or sociology ought to be able to give. So I'm, I'm never judgmental. I'm always trying to figure out what's what, what's the story. Mm. How many legs does this story have? And then you know try to examine you know in a Socratic kind of way with individuals, talk them through it, let them talk through it to see because they have to take charge. You know I I don't believe in like I can just give money to people or give stuff to people and expect them to get out of wherever problem they're in. I think that, but if I can get them to think critically about it and I can work with them to help them think critically about it, 
that's that's probably the best gift I can give them because now they they have ownership of it. And uh, sometimes you just need somebody to help you clearly see through certain things, you mm. know. Absolutely. As a leader, what would you say that your 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 greatest challenge is? Getting up in the morning. No, <laughs> <laughs> I'm right there with you. <laughs> I think the greatest challenge is is always been to uh, is is to some sometimes not be able to see the light at the end of the tunnel. Mm. And I think that, that that's discouraging and um, and that, you know, when you when you see, for example, Black Lives Matter and then you think, oh, well, you know, it's going to get better and it doesn't. And then, you know, you see the disappointment in the eyes of moms or or people that, you know, you know, when you see people who go in the hospice and, you, and, and, you know, there is uh, you know that this is like. Like in New York, the, the, the hospital place was called Calvary. And I said, wow, what a name. Um, it's right near Einstein Hospital. Mm. But, and I, and I, every time I would go there to see the people, it's like, I don't have a message of hope. I really don't have a message of hope. But inside of me, there is that message of hope. And so I tried to reach deep inside of me to, to make sure, because it's different for every individual. Yeah. And I think it's that way in life. It's like, how do you, how do you, how do you bring this this message of hope uh, to people? I'll give you an example. I had a friend of mine. Well, one of my clients, I should say, became a friend of mine. And when the when the um, COVID nineteen hit, and um, and they were they were getting ready to do a study at at Yale, a Pfizer study, and he's a young man who has two kids, two young kids, well, I shouldn't say young, 14 and 15 year old, girl and a boy, like, and I said to him, I said, are you going to get the vaccine? You want to be in this trial study for the Pfizer? And he said, doc, don't do it. And I said, huh? He said, don't do it. He said, you you don't, you don't know. You just don't know how, how that, let other people do it and then you do it. And that's when I realized that, you know, we have to be unselfish in our giving, mm. you know. And so I told him, I said, if I if I followed if I followed your advice, I might not be around to get it, since it's disproportionately affecting more African Americans than we ever dreamed it would. So I'm going to be in the study, and so you know, I got in the study. My wife got in the study. Members of my congregation got in the study. I had people co-workers here that I brought down when uh, we did a vaccine in, in Brantford. But again, it's like real leaders lead. And um, I don't know what I don't know what the motivation is or other than the fact that you just want to do is get into good trouble or you just want to do good. Yeah. And, you know, absolutely. There's a lot of things you've accomplished throughout your your, your life. Um, and probably a lot more you're going to accomplish. But, you know, wh- what's been the most rewarding thing, rewarding thing for you? Is there something that just made you feel incredibly good about what you do? Or is there any kind of moment that you'd like to share? Well, I think that uh, my recent involvement with the, um, the YCCI, mm-hmm. you know, clinical investigation, I think that that has become uh, a main focus for uh, my giving back to the community through working with them to change, um, to change outcomes uh, for life expectancy and better quality of life. And, you know, it took me a while to uh, to join this this um, this movement because of my hesitation of uh, the experimentation of the minority populations within the medical profession. 
you know. But when you look at the statistics and you see that African Americans, their lifespan is like seven to ten years uh, shorter than their counterparts. When you see that African American men die two times more so than than others from prostate cancer, when you see that diabetes and heart heart disease become um, five times greater if you're African American than if you're not, as well as hypertension. You got to figure out, you know, how do you deal with it? So there was, there was a study that showed these babies that were in the water. I think you probably heard the story. And they were in the water. They were drowning. And these people, three people in the boat, they got out and they started taking these babies and they were putting them to shore. And then one of the guys, he walked away like he was going upstream. And they said, where are you going? The babies are here. We need you to save them. And he says, no, I need to go and see where they're coming from. And maybe I can stop them. And so... Uh, the story leads into this doctor who had a young African-American girl who had uh, asthma. And she said, I want my asthma medicine. He said, well, tell me about it. He said, where do you live? And she told him. And she said, is, he asked her, was there any mold? Was there any water? Um, you know, was there a lot of dust in the place? And so when she started talking to him, he realized that it was her environment. And, and so rather than just give her the pills, he wanted to deal with why she had the asthma. And so he filed a complaint on her behalf with the uh, landlord and with the city. They came in, they cleaned up her apartment, and the asthma went away. Amazing. <laughs> so get to the root, right? <laughs> the root. Um, you, you had mentioned, uh, you know, covid and you know, here we are, right in one of the worst pandemics of our time. Who would have Who would have thought? Um, how How has COVID impacted you personally? Ha, has it been challenging, or how How are you viewing this? Well, uh, fortunately enough, I was a part of that Pfizer study, so and I was able to get members of my congregation, and I was able to get some of my friends to be in the study. And then when it was unblinded, uh, I had gotten the vaccine in August 2020, along with my daughter and along with members of my congregation. And so, you know, I felt really great about that. And I thought that, you know, by example, maybe other people would be interested. And so we've been doing campaigns to change the, those outcomes and try to get more people vaccinated. And so we've had clinics in our in our area and in our community, even where I work and, and the churches in this area. And so that's really been a challenge. The new challenge seems to be how do we get young people? So one of the things we did at YCCI, we said that, you know, our our team is made up of older clergymen and older members of congregations in the area. We need to do something that's going to help us address the young people. So we started um, a young ambassador program. So we, we have uh, five young uh, new ambassadors who are being trained even as we speak so that they can go out and they can start messaging. They can do informatics. They can do TikTok. They can, they can help us like getting messages that would uh, be meaningful to their, their generation. Absolutely. And that, that's, that, that's, that's, that's where we are. That, that's, that's the task before us. It's interesting that most of the uh, seniors and, and, and in the African-American community got vaccinated. You know, it's like, I'm, hey, I'm not going to take the risk. Um, and, you know, when you're living in an apartment building, when you're living, you're on an elevator, when, you, when you're not have to get to um, medical care, you don't have transportation, you don't have, you know, and so there's a whole lot that's going on with that. So one of the things we also did was we started a, pro, a pilot program for seniors so they could do Zoom, they could um, do telemedicine, and I taught one of those classes uh, for four weeks, and it's just amazing how their lives were transformed, you know? Absolutely. I mean, it's interesting. I was talking to some family members who had gone through the polio, right? When when the polio vaccine came along and it was amazing to me that 
you know, back then everybody lined up and, and got the shot. And, you know, here we are today, we have a lot of challenges and getting getting folks to get it. But to your point, the seniors, you know, right away, a lot of people just, they just did it, you know, and it seems like the younger folks are the ones that um, need a little bit more uh, handholding through this, through this situation. So I'm confident and, and hopefully, hopefully we'll, we'll, we'll get there. But um, I, I want to ask you, are there, are there things or lessons from this pandemic that you will take with you later in life? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I think there's a, there's a national lesson that we all learn. And that is that, uh, who would have thought that, uh, African Americans would have, would have been so impacted by this. And so what are the social determinants that made made this scenario what it is today. And so now you now like going back upstream, we got to go back and we got to fix that which is broken in this healthcare system. Mm. And so that, you know, we can take marginalized people and people we take for granted and uh, communities that we may have given up on and say, you know, we need to take another look on how we address these disparities if we are to be the great nation that we are. But what about you personally? What what are you going to take from this? Is there? I I could give you examples of what I I'm taking with me. Um, you know, an appreciation for the outdoors. Um, I think when you know when we all went into lockdown last last year, the at the beginning of this, it was like, okay, I need to get outside. And is it safe to go outside? Well, I guess I can I could ride my bicycle. Out in out in the trails of the woods, so that's kind of stuck with me. Also, you know, keeping close with people um, in my life ha- has kind of um, stuck with me too, because you just never know when when people are going to be taken from you. So, you know, for you, Reverend Perry, what 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 are the the things you're going to take with you from from this pandemic in in your personal life? Well, I mean. One of the things that I, I think that all of us have arrived at is that you can't take anything for granted. And like you said, you know, uh, part, of, part of me is the part that loves communicating with people and not being able to meet people face to face with the eye contact and, you know, with all that goes with just being in person with someone in family in particular, uh, or members, you know, when you, if you have family members that have comorbidities, it's hard for them to, um, travel. They're not really seeing people. So for me, it's the absence of family that I'm, I, uh, that definitely, um, triggers in me, uh, some, some meaningful thinking. And, um, I think the other thing of, about the pandemic is is that I'm so concerned about the people that I love who who are still hesitant about getting the vaccine. It's like it's to me it's almost like it's either the vaccine or the virus. Mm. And uh, I you know that's not a great outcome. No, it's a it's a scary situation. Yeah. For sure. I know you, you, you talk about like eye contact and things like that. It's like, you know, wearing a mask. I can't, you know, you're in a store. You can't smile at someone. You have to almost like learn how to smile with your eyes or, or you know, <laughs> or hand gestures and things like that. It's, it's a different, it's teaching, I think it's teaching people to communicate in a new way on some level for sure. Um, what, you know, what I want to know one of the things that's kind of interesting is we, we all love to talk about the things we accomplish. Um, it, it's easy to talk about success, but th- this is always a tough question to answer. But tell me, tell me about a favorite failure of yours. And what I mean by that is, was there something that you thought you were so sure that this was going to work, but it didn't? And what was the lesson? Because, you know, Everybody's afraid of the F word, failure, right? But sometimes it's not so bad. So what did you fail at that stood out to you and what did you learn from it? 
Mm. Well, I had a lot of failures. Uh, I had a failure when I was uh, a teenager. One of my friends was in a fight, and um, I didn't get in the fight with him. And I regret that all my life. Mm. Um, and the reason I didn't get into the fight was not because it was, it was, the f it was uh, anything other than my own fear. And from that point on, I just realized, which made me a better warrior, is that I can't worry about my own physical body, or I can't let my fears keep me from fighting or risking getting hurt. And and so I think. That's one of the things I learned early on. So I'm willing to take on a challenge, even if it means um, that it, my outcomes may not be the best. But then I'm judging by the things of the world and not the things that are beyond this world. That mm. really, you know. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, here, here's an interesting kind of question if you knowing what you know now and where you are at this point in your life if you could give your 22 year old self or your 18 year old self some advice knowing what you know today what would it be that's that's a heavy question uh, <laughs> uh, I, I guess um, to learn to to learn from my mistakes and to not repeat them. I think that when you're when you're young, you think that you are invincible. And so when you make a mistake, you're almost willing to go ahead and try again to think, oh, I can handle it. But really, you know, there's some things that you don't need to, um, that you need to learn the lessons from, you know? Yeah. You need to learn the lessons from, and uh, there are a lot of lessons I wish I could just go back and rewrite chapters of my life, which I I just go ahead and, and, and just now look at trying to do better, you know? And that's what I try to tell people who, who do have failures and faults, that you can't carry them with you. You, 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 you. you can't forget them, don't forget about them. You know, they're, they're our past, but they're not our present. And our future is always in our present. Yeah. So you just got to move on because I think that's where depression sets in. I think that's where you lose a sense of self. And when you lose that sense of self and, and that appreciation for self, it's really hard to come out of that box and grow to your full potential. Absolutely. What do you what do you enjoy to do outside of out of your your work and, and commitments? Is there anything interesting we should know? When I was, um, well, let me just say this. I, I got to the point where I love books so much that I had about 6,000 books in my house. Oh, wow. And um, today I may have 1,000. But I, I, my new joy is audible. So while I'm riding to work, which is a 30, 60-minute commute, I can play these books uh, which uh, it's like I read an Audible Obama's book just recently, and Cecily Tyson has one out, and Jeffrey Stewart's book, which is 900 pages. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I enjoy, I, I really enjoy that. And the other thing I enjoy doing is going out and eating at different restaurants. I've always loved that. I've always loved trying to just look at ethnic foods from different different people, different populations, and just it just brings me closer to their geography and it brings me closer to an understanding of, of how close we are related, you know? Uh, Idaho, Idaho potatoes, I would never know they were from Idaho unless somebody told me, or the coffee is from Africa. But when I go to, the, there's a restaurant in New York called Setempeña, and it's a coffee house, and you can go there and find seven different ethnic groups in there conversating right off 125th Street. Um, I love the Brazilian restaurants. I love the, uh, I love the Jewish restaurants. Uh, I love uh, Italian. It's one of my favorite. And Indian, oh, my God. Mm. 
oh, Bengal tiger. I just, I grew up with that. I mean, my daughter, we used to bring her when she was a baby, set her on the table in the, in, in, in the car seat, like, and then we'd go get our place. And now that, that girl loves Indian food, and I know why, <laughs> because every Saturday we would take her, and, and she just grew up on it. And now in New Haven, that's where she goes. When she has a choice, she'll go to the Indian restaurant. New Haven has such a, a an incredible food scene. I mean, oh. all of the, the I know the area like near Howe Street and Crown Street. There's a, there's like a string of Indian restaurants and Thai Thai food. And now now, oh, yeah. now you're making me hungry. I want to get down to, <laughs> <laughs> but you, you know, and and but you bring up a pretty interesting point. Like food is, you know, I I don't know if it's just because I'm getting older or what, but you know, food is such a powerful thing that brings people together and, you know, sharing something. And I can, I can remember, you know, I think about it now when my, my brother and I growing up, we weren't allowed to leave the kitchen table until we finished our food. But I think it, I think it was more about just keeping the family together and, and, and just, you know, having that hour or whatever it was to sit at the table and talk. Yeah, yeah. It's sacramental. I mean, Jesus always had those meals. Those were the, those were the things that bind bind the people together, you know. And um, I got started with them when I was talking to you earlier. I remember the meal that our parents had at the table and how we sat around the table. Now, no one eats at a table. Everyone eats on the run and on the go. It's amazing. It's a difference, you know? I think, yeah, I think we got to get back to the table for sure. Oh, uh, yeah. Okay, so final question. Um, I, I listened to a podcast on, on NPR that I really like. Um, it's hosted by a, a, a fellow named Guy Raz, and I really enjoy his show, and, and I think this is such a brilliant question, so I'm going to steal it or borrow it. <laughs> uh, so I'm going to ask the same thing. How, how much of your success has been pure luck and how much is it from you know your leadership and brilliance okay so i really don't it's like um when i was when i was in school there were some kids who were really bright they just had it and there were some kids who were um like i said uh late bloomers and my teacher once said to me she said, Mr. Perry, there, there are people who are gifted. And, and that's just what they, they can play piano. They, they can come into a class and they can read a book. And she said, but the, there's the other type that works hard to earn it. Mm-hmm. It doesn't come easy, but if they, they, they learn to apply themselves and they're just as brilliant as those people who are gifted. So I, I believe that my, my success in life has come through my uh, perseverance and diligence. And, um, and so, you know, I, I used to build computers. When I, when I was working on my doctorate, I kept making so many mistakes on the typewriter that some of my friends in my program said, let's go get, a, get the parts and we'll build the computer. When, that, when, I, when I learned to build a computer, I didn't realize that after you build a computer, you got all these other issues like spyware and computers breaking down. You oh, yeah. Important. You need to know DOS. I would be up 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning. My family would be asleep. Why are you up? And I said, I just got to fix this. I've got to work on it. So I have this sense of perseverance of trying to, like, um, uh, learn, even if it takes, if it means I have to give up some sleep, you know. And I think that's, that's, that's how you achieve greatness is that you, you're willing to sacrifice your comforts for, a greater, for something that is greater than yourself. I feel like that's some great advice and, and a great place to, to leave off here. Um, any, any, any final words that you'd just like to say or add before we, uh, before we wrap up? Well, you know, again, I, I think that uh, what, what may be missing in our society is, is this is the family, um, the family, and I mean a holistic family that comes together, that helps with goals and helps with self-esteem and helps with um, right living versus wrong living, you know, 
we, we, we come up in a family that, you know, says, you know, it's wrong and you can't do that. We have a group of people now where nothing is wrong and you can do whatever you want to do, whatever you're big enough to do, as long as you're willing to uh, suffer the consequences. We need to get back to, to the family, to the root, and we need to get back to God in our lives and in our families, because I think that makes a difference. Uh, whatever it is that is your ultimate concern, it ought to be something that's so positive that makes you want to live a positive life and to do no harm. That is that is some some great advice. Um, I want to thank you uh, for for connecting with us and and you know taking the time out of your day for this inspiring conversation. Thank you very much. <laughs> thank you. I appreciate it. And there we have it. That's Reverend Dr. Leroy Perry. I hope you enjoyed our conversation. And if you would like to learn more about him and his work with the St. Stephen's AME Zion Church and the Yale Center for Clinical Investigations, please visit stephensamezion.org or yaleclinicaltrials.com. Upfront is brought to you by Mason, an integrated brand communications firm located in Southern Connecticut that provides communications ingenuity through advertising, public relations, social media, digital, and media services. To learn more, visit mason23.com or send an email to hello at mason23.com. This show was produced, engineered, researched, and designed with help and assistance from TJ Tower and Neil Johnson. Thank you so much for listening. See you again soon.